This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It is Tuesday, 7th of February, 2023. We have some interesting market developments here with a, uh, a sell-off that tried to tease that key reversal there, or reversal areas in the S&P 500. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, yields also under pressure higher, I think, pressuring this market. But before we talk about that, let's have a look at uh, what we've just released today from the strategy team here at Saxo. It is our quarterly outlook for the first quarter of 2023. Yes, we are aware that we're well into the second month of this quarter. We do this every year because our deadlines tend to be before the quarter begins, and that's a bit difficult uh, in the holiday cycle. So we put the first quarter outlook out. It's generally more an outlook for the first, let's call it a couple quarters of the year anyway. Uh, but our theme this year, as you can see on slide two, and we have a link there, you can uh, type in that URL, go to.saxo forward slash QO, and you'll find our outlook. The models are broken. What do we mean by that? We think that the market is too complacent, that we are somehow able to go back to the pre-pandemic cycle uh, and the pre-pandemic models for how the economy works. Uh, why? Well, you can read, of course, the publication, but it's all about uh, too much complacency around a soft landing, something we think is impossible. We think it's impossible for inflation to sustainably normalize in a world that is deglobalizing, where the physical world is too small for all the investments we need to make to expand uh, energy supplies, especially the green transformation uh, and making sure our uh, in deglobalization context, the supply chains are more robust and uh, you know defense initiatives, et cetera. The fiscal impulse will continue to keep inflation uh, bubbling along. And that we also have China reopening. We have a new Bank of Japan governor coming in after 10 years under the radical experiments of Kuroda. Peter, in your space, you talk about tangibles versus intangibles with this focus on this physical world, uh, tangibles being something we th think will have superior returns relative to the intangibles that have overperformed for what, is it two decades? What, the intangibles? Since 2008 till 2020. So, so essentially the post-GFC uh, yeah, exactly. cycle there. Turn, turn in the U.S. dollar, that's going to prove difficult, although we think it'll happen eventually. Uh, I think the recent market action proving that out, and I think I'll use that as a segue into, uh, although you wanted to add some, Peter. Yeah, I, I want to, because I, I think the models are broken. I think it was interesting that Larry Summers, which is a very uh, well-known and, and, and respected, at least among uh, you know uh, policymakers, for his thoughts on the economy, he has this uh, thesis called the secular stagnation, and he, he, in a recent bigger interview, said that he is now... He doesn't believe in that theory any longer, and that was the theory that all you know central uh, central bankers and and big investment managers, pension funds, life insurance companies were, were basing their low interest and inflation uh, predictions off. And what I find interesting about that is that his view, the secular stagnation, is is effectively the the last stage of the globalization that only fits that uh, end of the period. And it's the same with the intangible versus uh, intangible versus tangible was also sort of the late stage. I think the broader the broader theme here is the is the two value systems that are now colliding in the world again. It's an echo from 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 World War Two, and 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 then it's the whole globalization, the convergence, the hope of convergence in terms of values, and uh, we could be a one big happy family. And now that sort of seems to be broken. I think that's really the big broken model here. Breaking up happy families, that's never a good process. It's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but uh, back to my attempt to segue into the uh, into the market action. And I think it really is interesting because what we're seeing here, of course, is a repricing of the Fed. 
the market is finding this uncomfortable. And if it continues to reprice, I think it will break this uh, this rally and see it reverse. But that, that'll be the big question. So we have, of the three big co coincident indicators, you could argue the US dollar is one of them, US rates is another, and then just risk sentiment more broadly is a third. And the dollar, I think, is, has pretty much posted a reversal and is arguably uh, in, in line with a, a reversal elsewhere. Uh, and especially in terms of risk sentiment. But we haven't given away the support just still in there. We did test on the cash index. The key level was 4,100. That survived yesterday. It was a few points below that. And the equivalent level on the currently most traded future, the, the March future, is at 4,104. So I think a breakdown and close below those levels looking like the beginnings of a technical breakdown. You said, uh, Peter, you didn't find anything particularly remarkable about uh, yesterday's uh, session. No, I mean, we talked about the 4,100 level, uh, sort of a highway down to that area. We we came very close, but uh, we rebounded in the S&P 500 futures. And um, I think it, it sort of underscores that there still is strength, short-term strength potential in this market. I think if we get a close today above yesterday's close, I think definitely we, we have a short-term uh, strength in the market still. Um, we can maybe run on fumes for a little bit uh, longer. And, and if not, if we get a lower low, then and we push below the 4,100, I think then the whole range from 4,000 to 4,100 is sort of the the next um, trading range. And I've also put out, uh, out the uh, equity theme baskets performance overview here where you can see the performance for the uh, for the last week. And you can see that you know, bubble stocks is still doing extremely well and cybersecurity, which we'll talk more about because one of the largest cybersecurity firms uh, is actually reporting earnings today. All right. And then you can see uh, on slide four there showing the, the two-year treasury yield. It is a pretty remarkable move. Uh, we were tickling down close to the 4% level, the close of the cycle. And now we're all the way back up pushing on what is clearly a quite an, an interesting range there, uh, at the top of the range at 4.5%. Pretty remarkable that 4.5% for the two-year when you consider that we now have a peak uh, Fed funds rate uh, priced in yesterday at the peak of yesterday. We have come back a little bit, uh, at least the July peak, is, which is the single month I picked out, at 5.15%. So that is indicating a two more full two more uh, 25 basis point hikes. Another indicator I would use it would be something like broader risk sentiment uh, outside of simply something like the VIX or the, the S&P levels. And that would be on the credit side. There, there's no nothing but complacency there. If you look at the Bloomberg high yield bond spread, uh, actually posting new lows since uh, let's call it uh, last spring, there below 400 basis points. So there's no broader pickup in in concern on that front. And then I think I'll, I'll get over to you or before I rewind a little bit to the FX market because there were a couple of developments outside of the dollar. But clearly, just you know, last two days, massive two year uh, yield jump on on the two year Fed being repriced. Gold gets repriced, especially after that very long and persistent run that never saw a decent consolidation. So where are you focusing for, for how low this can go before it becomes something more sort of threatening to the overall rally off the uh, sub-1650 lows? Well, as I write on the on slide six here today, it's uh, so far it's a weak correction within a strong uptrend, and uh, you can argue that will uh, be this uh, that will be maintained as long as we at least stay above 1828. So far, we're managing uh, to find some uh, support at 1860 uh, area. Uh, we haven't had any follow-through selling following that break below 1900 on on Friday, which has been uh, quite a key level. So uh, for now, it's it's really just watching. Uh, I'll say the the dollar put in the Bloomberg dollar index, which is a broader index, and you can see how it's just tracking the dollar quite quite closely. So so obviously, clearly, what uh, what's happening in your space will be will have a quite a significant impact. But it does indicate that despite yesterday's further dollar strength and further yield strength. We, uh, we did not see any further weakness. So there are some bits coming into the market. So for now, it's a weak correction within a strong uptrend. 
All right, a weak but sharp correction, and it's similar setup here if you look at something like Aussie dollar. Showing that on slide five, to my mind, uh, we're at these pivotal levels. We did get below 69. Uh, I think another figure, and you're talking about a major reversal there, and already I think this is a threatening lower levels here, but there was a supportive development for the Aussie overnight. We had the RBA out with a more hawkish guidance than expected. Basically, the market having to tack on another 25 basis point hike, a little bit less than that, to the uh, forward curve uh, before they are seen reaching their peak for the cycle. Uh, still, the guidance is a little bit sort of bearish on, on the economy, even though they've been surprised by inflation. So I think the, the move and the rally off the lows here are a little bit muted, and the dollar was, was quite strong across the board uh, elsewhere. So uh, yeah, I, it really cleared that 200-day moving average coming into focus. If, if it heads lower still, I think it break below 68, and you're talking about a, a capitulation move that could take it significantly lower still, uh, that would be that would require probably some some further pressure, at least sideways action in some of the commodity space, uh, you know, as we're waiting for this uh, China to come online story, etc. Elsewhere in FX, we saw a 25 plus year high in Japan's wages, uh, wage growth, 4.8% year on year versus the 2.5% expected highest since 1997 and a tremendous spike. It was it has been wages that Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda has cited as a key thing to get Japanese inflation sustainable again. So how the Bank of Japan responds to this will be interesting as well as a follow-on, of course, wage data in coming months. Yeah, and it is a little bit interesting that the estimates are so low because we've had quite a quite a bunch of Japanese companies highlighting in advance I would say that uh, a lot of wage growth is coming from their side um, so I don't know I don't I don't really understand the the big difference here between where the where the expectations are and where the reality is yeah uh, great point and uh, again there, there is this clear sense even though the uh, what has sent the yen actually ironically weaker in recent days has been the the, the theory that this uh, uh, deputy governor Amamiya will be the new replacement and he's considered on the dovish side there is a sense of a sort of a, a shift that is, is set to happen for the Bank of Japan policy, some form of normalization relative to its uh, past under Kuroda. So we'll have to keep an eye on that for sure. And still have those weak Scandinavian currencies ahead of the Reeks Bank on Thursday, and I'll get to more on that. Uh, we've kind of previewed that already. All right, let's round out the commodity space. Although we have crude oil still under pressure, still uh, arguably not sort of indicating the kind of inflationary uh, pressures that might be in some of the wage data and some of the payrolls data in the U.S., ISM services data, et cetera. What are we waiting for for that would might stop this slide in, in crude oil prices? I think the same thing that the industrial metal sector is waiting for, a pickup in China, uh, because uh, the market was, uh, was hotting up in January in, in anticipation of a, of a surge in demand. And uh, I think the market is just getting out to a bit of a rally check, uh, just realizing that the demand will pick up, but it will take time. And so far, we we haven't really seen that, uh, especially in something like copper as well, which uh, is being supported by supply disruptions. But uh, the demand outlook there right now in, in the short term is still is not uh, is not picking up. But the oil market, uh, we we did have we we've seen the bounce uh, after that uh, sell off last week. I would say it's a long liquidation driven sell off. A lot of uh, speculative longs went into the Brent market. Uh, in, during January, and they have now been uh, been been reduced. So um, the focus is on obviously on this incredibly terrible uh, earthquake in, uh, that hit Turkey and Syria yesterday. We've seen uh, one of the pipelines that comes uh, supplies oil from northern Iraq down to uh, down to the Black Sea has been uh, has been closed down, uh, but just for precautionary measures. Uh, so that's basically uh, that's up towards a million barrels a day. And same time, Saudi Arabia uh, raised their product, their selling price for March to Asia. 
clearly indicating that they do see a pickup in uh, in demand. So otherwise, they wouldn't uh, raise the price. So so that's uh, that's underpinning the prices. And just on the uh, on the Russian uh, fuel embargo that we were that was implemented by Europe uh, over the weekend, I just put in the uh, the charts uh, showing the diesel price priced in dollars per barrel, just to give give you an idea about where where prices are. And we've actually seen quite a bit of a slump in diesel prices uh, during the past couple of weeks ahead of this embargo. We're getting close to that hundred dollar uh, price cap uh, barrier. That's obviously not the price Russia is selling at right now. They're probably selling at uh, at below eighty uh, because they have to sell diesel not to to Rotterdam, but now to Japan or to India. So they have to they have to count take uh, take into account the uh, the higher cost of of getting that diesel ship to uh, to a willing buyer. All right, and I see a little bit of a segue from crude oil there into your stocks to watch today, Peter. We have another big oil major uh, reporting, uh, BP. Yeah, they, they their business is still doing fine. I mean, although we are rolling a little bit over in the in the global energy sector, the earnings are coming down a little bit, and that's because oil and gas prices are coming down. Um, but they remain pretty confident in the near-term future. They're raising their dividends by 10%, and and. There is a very, there is a stickiness to dividends, so you don't just raise it just to cut it again. It's that's often a very negative. So when you raise it, it's because you know you can actually sustain your cash flows at the level needed for that new dividend level. So very positive there. And then, as I, as I said to all before we went into the studio, if you look at the uh, the capex levels that are expected from BP this year, uh, sixteen to eighteen uh, billion dollars. That's I think a pretty significant jump from the twelve billion they they delivered uh, in the fiscal year of two thousand twenty two. But as I always pointed out. Is it new energy or is it old energy? I, I, I a little bit hate that expression, but and it is the the oil and gas investments that will be be more or less flat. It's it's additional investments into what they call energy transition and new energy systems. So they are doubling down on their commitment, also in their press release that they are will increasingly use their excess cash flows in that direction. And John, you had a you had a comment. No, I was going to say uh, that it's interesting to hear that uh, increased investment in the alternative space because it has been noteworthy. The, the big lessons learned from the 2011 to 2014 period of high energy prices that those massive investments they made uh, yielded no good new supplies. And now there's this whole ESG angle uh, where uh, you know they need to show that they're in, uh, they're focusing investment elsewhere. And, and it also is going to continue to guarantee uh, to my mind, unless we are somehow able to make this <laughs> alternative energy transition, uh, that with that lack of investment, that supplies uh, sh- uh, could risk remaining quite tight for for the uh, you know traditional fossil fuels. Right. The two other stocks we highlight in uh, the stocks to watch today uh, are Carlsberg and Nintendo. If we start with Carlsberg, so they pretty much hit revenue and operating income for uh, for, the, for the fiscal year 2022 against estimates. Their organic operating profit estimate for the for this fiscal year. They put it at minus five to plus five percent, which is quite weak. Or you could say the uncertainty is quite high relative to the expectation of a four percent growth rate in that operating profit. And they, 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 they say that they don't feel a high degree of confidence in demand for uh, for beer during the inflationary uh, period that we are seeing. Uh, I find that quite interesting because Carlsberg is in the consumer staples sector, which is typically you know stable. Consumption. It's not discretionary consumption. So I don't know why Carlsberg is uh, what they are seeing in their numbers since they are putting out this very wide uh, range in, in outcome for the year. But um, certainly the market will not like that. And then Nintendo, which is one of the few interesting growth companies out of Japan that has a you know a brand that we 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 know in the West is uh, the gaming or game console developer. 
they have the Switch, which has become extremely popular, but the fiscal year outlook for the Switch, um, they put it down at 18 million units versus 19 expected from the market. And they also the net income outlook is, uh, is missing estimates by a little. But we should say that the underlying growth of the Switch is still very strong. All right. Anything else you want to highlight on the earnings calendar? A few of those companies you mentioned, or a couple of them, already on today's uh, earnings watch list there on slide nine. Yeah, we mentioned Fortunate. So Fortunate being the uh, one of the biggest cybersecurity firms in the world on revenue. I've put in their quarterly financials there on slide nine in the little insert. And um, you can see that the expectation for the fourth quarter is revenue growth at 34%. So while the, while the world is slowing down in some areas, uh, something that is red hot is the cybersecurity. And as you probably have read in the news, there has recently been a pretty, uh, a pretty substantial cybersecurity attack, uh, which uh, at one point was, uh, was hitting Italy quite hard. The government was out saying that they, a lot of government infrastructure was not impacted, uh, but there was a risk. And it's these constant headlines and also the war in Ukraine. We've seen uh, efforts from, uh, from China and Russia uh, you know, different entities out of these two countries, uh, you know, increasing their cybersecurity uh, threats. So, um, and it probably also goes the goes the other way around from the West into Russia and 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 China. So there's a tit for tat there. So this industry is still going to be a high growth, expanding march. And then I would just highlight two more earnings today to watch: Enphase Energy, one of the best performing green energy stocks in the U.S. over the past five ten years. Watch that super interesting company. And then KKR. We, we haven't highlighted it on the podcast, but we had this news. I don't remember whether, I think it was the Blackstone. Blackstone has the biggest real estate fund for high ultra high net worth individuals in the US. And in January, there was a, uh, a they hit the redemption ceiling of 2% or redemption limit, but actually the, the, the hoped or wished redemptions were 8% of the fund. I think that's a pretty significant signal. Think about it. You have wealthy, pretty informed individuals and 8% of the fund wants to to pull out, but they can only allow 2%. I think KKR on the outlook, the, it, you know, representing private equity and risk capital, I think is quite interesting just to see what they're saying about the, the near-term future. Yeah, both of those operating in a very illiquid space. And there's been a lot of talk about a lot of the premiums that people are trying to find above the market, above and beyond market uh, returns, uh, standard market returns have been in these less liquid spaces, especially private equity. And, and real estate notoriously illiquid. So that's a very interesting story indeed as, as yields have gone higher. Okay, on the economic calendar we have on slide 10, just to round things out, we have a few central bank speakers from the Bank of England, some ECB ones, uh, even a couple I haven't even put up on the calendar here. Uh, watch for that. I think the, the big sense from the ECB is that they're going to do another 50 in, in March and do a pause. Uh, so I think we've kind of settled that for now. Uh, interesting to see Fed Chair Powell's interview today with uh, this crazy – I think he, the Fed would have argued that the market is getting things wrong in the way they reacted to last Wednesday's FOMC meeting. But then, ironically, uh, strong data came and sort of bailed that reaction function out. And so now we're at peak expectations for the cycle. So Fed Chair Powell's mission, if you will, is, is less urgent if he is trying to maintain uh, or, or urge the market to, to price the Fed at, at staying higher for longer. That is happening. The, the, the yield cuts or the rate cuts are getting priced, continued out there in 2024, but it's kind of getting shifted a little bit out the curve after this week's uh, action. And we have some uh, in your space, Ola, the uh, weekly crude and fuel stock report from the API. Yeah, and, I think uh, it, yeah go ahead. <clears throat> I think it's, in, uh, it's probably going to attract some attention because we've seen this uh, continued increase uh, or bigger than expected increases in uh, U.S. Uh, crude stocks uh, over the past month. So I think it, it will be... Uh, It'll be a lead in tomorrow's EIA number, and uh, then it could help set some of the, the tone in the market. Right. And then a whole passel of Fed voters and speakers out tomorrow. 
and that Reeks Bank announcement on Thursday from Sweden, where the guidance is really key, especially a, a big test with Eurostocky having posted its highest level since 2009 uh, yesterday. And we have a brand new Reeks Bank governor, and we have the yield spreads at local lows, not seen in quite some time, at least recently they've posted those local lows uh, relative to the EU. Um, I, th I think it's a very pivotal meeting for for that currency. So let's let's have a look at that one as well. And then just pointing out next week the U.S. Uh, January CPI on tap. All right, that is a wrap for today. Let's see how markets develop, and we'll be back tomorrow with the next Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>